Hey, this is Steve. I will be appearing at Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina from June 16th to 18th, 2023. I will be participating in a panel on comics podcasting, and I will be set up in Artist Alley. If you can be there, come by and see me. I'd really appreciate it. Now, let's go ahead and wrap up July of 1965. Thanks a lot. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. All right, Steve, welcome back. I was just a guest on a podcast of New Zealand self-published romance authors uh-huh. uh, called The Spa Girls, Spa standing for self-published authors. They're like, hey, we have a guest, Matt Bird. And I said, welcome. And they're like, Matt has his own podcast, which is why he said welcome to us instead of us saying welcome to him. <laughs> yes, I, I often notice that, that you're inviting me to the podcast, which I am recording in my home. So... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, welcome, Steve. Welcome. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and do the second half of July 65. I will start us off with Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man and Captain America number 67. And we've got a cover. It looks like a nice curvy cover with Iron Man fighting a lot of his biggest foes and also lamest foes on the cover. Oh, yeah. And we have Captain America seemingly trying to assassinate the Supreme Command HQ Allied Expeditionary Forces in the bottom of the cover. So it looks like an exciting issue. We then begin this issue, and Captain Nefaria has glammed up. He now wears double earrings. I don't believe he had double earrings last time he was around, did he? I don't think so. He looks entirely different. Iron Man, Werewalks of Villains, written by our roguish writer Stan Lee, penciled by our prankish penciler Don Heck, inked by our impish inker Mickey DeMeo, who is, of course, really Mike Esposito, lettered by our other letterer Esposito, and read by our rockin' reader you. Pepper is still distraught that Happy has left her. And Happy, we find out, is flown to Ireland to live with his grandfather. I would think Happy would be too old to have living grandparents. Iron Man is trying to make Pepper feel better, but can't. Pepper, at this point, has just openly despised Iron Man for quite some time, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. We then cut to newly glam-rockified Count Nefaria. He's got a worldwide electro scanner, and he's able to see Iron Man in his headquarters charging up. And I'm like, okay, that seems like some really, really valuable technology that you could use with way greater effect than some of the other stuff you're doing in this issue. You know, Excellent you could, point. You could find everyone's secret identities. You could find out exactly... Anyway, yeah. He then sends Iron Man into a dream, and in the dream, he is fighting the Unicorn and the Crimson Dynamo, even though the Crimson Dynamo is dead. And then Iron Man wakes up, it's like, oh, that was a weird dream. And he then decides to fly to Shannon, Ireland, to try to get Happy back, and attaches himself to the roof of a jet to fly across the Atlantic. And uh, as you pointed out when you posted this panel, it's, if you thought Spirit Airlines was bad, just imagine being... I'll magnetize myself to the steel exterior of this transit oceanic jet until we approach Ireland. Not and, pleasant. Just buy a ticket, dude. And of course, planes have never been made of steel. They're made of aluminum, which is not magnetic. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a 
Also, Iron Man's way too big there. I mean, you know, it's like you got to think there's probably got to be at least an aisle and two seats on each side at the minimum. <laughs> and he's sitting there pretty much straddling the entire thing. Anyway, one way or the other. It's a fun panel, though. <laughs> it's it's a silly panel. Yes. Iron Man gets to Happy, who is with his humorously stereotypical old Irish grandfather with a gnarled cane. I believe that's his, called a shillelagh. A shillelagh in his stone hut. Ah, oh, yes, it's a shillelagh. And <laughs> then, then Iron Man suddenly goes back into a dream. This is sort of like the Beatles song, A Day in the Life. And then then I fell back into a dream. Is once again fighting Crimson Dynamo, also fights Jack Frost, fights Gargantus, who he only fought very briefly once a long time ago. That, 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 uh, that was a poor choice. Yes, the uh, the <laughs> the giant robot caveman who he fought briefly in one of his very first appearances. Uh, Iron Man, of course, still thinks this is a dream the whole time. And so Counterfrey is sort of counting on the fact that Iron Man will eventually go like, oh, this is just a dream. It doesn't matter if I die. And then he'll kill him, even though it is a dream. This is all very unclear. Like, it is a dream, but there seemed to be going on the kid logic here of if you die in your dream, you die in real life. Yes. And seemingly banking on the fact that Iron Man will not care if he dies in the dream, even though Camp Ferry is also assuming that if you die in your dream, you die in real life, which presumably if that's true in this world, Iron Man would also know. It's all very unclear. And uh, But then Iron Man just goes and said, like, well, I don't care if this is a dream or not. I'm still going to defeat everybody. And he does. And Count Ferry is so upset that then up his whole thing short circuits and blows him up. I hate these. If Stanley and his artists are going to be telling half issue stories, they have to give us a full story. And we've had so many issues at this point where it's like some villain is trying to affect me using a machine from far away and I will defeat whatever the secondary effect of this machine is and never even know the villain exists. And I'll defeat the villain anyway because the machine's just going to blow up in his face. And it's so lame. We've had so many of these stories. At least put Iron Man and the villain together. This is a god-awful story. Anyway, well, Iron Man finds that Pepper has called Happy and convinced Happy to come home. So then Iron Man's like, oh, I, how about that? Pepper did my job for me while I took a nap. That was the easiest errand I ever undertook. But he doesn't know that he's blown up Captain Ferry and it wasn't all just a dream. A god-awful issue. Yeah, no, this is this is not uh, Iron Man's strongest issue. One panel that jumped out at me was on the final page of the story, panel three. Crimson Dynamo is laying uh, in a smoking heap, and Iron Man is saying to himself, there are those who ridicule America's manufacturing know-how, those who claim they can produce goods cheaper and faster. But there is the result. Whether he's real or a dream, the Crimson Dynamo is beaten. And here in 2023, it's just like hard to even begin where to, you know, <laughs> where to think about how the world is different from when this sentence, when these sentences were written. Now, everything is made in other countries, pretty much, <laughs> you know, except for some like, you know, specialty high tech stuff. And we just don't have the manufacturing base anymore. It's just uh, it, it just really jumped out at me as like, oh, man, we live in a different world. When I was a union organizer in the early 2000s in Minneapolis, at one point, like we were going to do something with the auto workers and I had to call the auto workers to find out like where their address was or something. And I was calling and I was listening to their message machine and they're like, Oh, if you want to visit the auto workers, come here, you'll find our parking lot here, park your American car in the parking lot. And, <laughs> uh, and here's, you know, here's the code or whatever. And I was like, yeah, I strive to Toyota. I'm like, well, I don't, you know, what am I going to, am I going to get towed by the auto workers? Cause I'm driving a Toyota. 
but uh, there was still a little bit of residual refusing to uh, accept foreign manufacture at that point. Yep. Next story, which is much better. Yes, a much better story. Captain America, less tyranny triumph. Captain America is still a Nazi, still training with the Nazis. Captain America is shooting guns at pictures of Americans. Meanwhile, Bucky has been captured. We never saw him get captured. But they pretend they're going to line everybody up against a wall and shoot them. But it's all just a joke. They're just the Nazis are laughing about this as, ha, did you think it would be so easy? Nine. We just had a joke with you. But then Bucky's like, joke's on you. And uses this um, sort of, while they're laughing, he attacks them. Nice battle scene. Bucky, pretty badass in these stories. Pretty awesome guy. At one point, he throws a grenade into a room that seemingly is full of people and uh blows it up so uh that's uh well, i mean they, they, they were ss officers but yes. but yes bucky clearly just murdered a room full of people <laughs> yes seemingly there were nazis Me- so we don't care but <laughs> still meanwhile red skull brings cap directly to hitler now of course you know these days i think people would we just don't like to see swashkas in our comic books at all or i would assume they'd be more unlikely to show Hitler. Now, we didn't talk about, one thing I meant to mention last month is we had the whole flashback to the origin of the Red Skull, and it was just very hard to do that sensitively and not in a way that would be offensive. Even, you know, us going back now, we're not going like, oh, this is horribly offensive. It really didn't. But when Mark Wade and I think it was Ron Garney revisited that story in the late 90s or early aughts, they managed to offend a lot of people by just retelling the story of Red Skull's origin. And, you know, it sort of seemed like an actual Nazi recruitment issue or something like that. That's sort of a testament to how well that story was done and that it was more of a minefield later on. But so then here, Red Skull brings Hitler face to face with Captain America. And Hitler's like, well, of course, Captain America began his comics career by punching me out. So I will now try to punch Captain America out. And Captain America, even though he's totally hypnotized, still whips up his shield and cracks Hitler's knuckles. Red Skull says, you are too careless, Peter. You forgot his reflexes. I cannot control them. Hitler's nursing his badly bruised knuckles and sends them all away. So then Bucky is still free. He realizes, quite lucky for him, there is a short Nazi who is about to invade London. As Bucky is trying on his uniform, the head Nazi, sorry, I keep having to do my German accents here. The head Nazi says, wait, some fun is missing. Is It is Schultz. Where is that undersized dumb cough? So clearly he is the short member of the platoon. So Bucky is able to take his place. Then Bucky is with Cap. Cap still doesn't recognize Bucky when they all invade London, parachute into London. Bucky is unable to stop Cap. Cap and a bunch of Nazis go to, presumably this is supposed to be Eisenhower's office or something like that, Mm -hmm. the head of the American Expeditionary Force. And Cap then wants to shoot him, but says, I cannot, something is stopping me, I can't. But then the Nazi grabs his gun and forces him to fire, and Cap seemingly shoots Eisenhower, and then the issue ends on a cliffhanger. So, yeah. this is a fantastic issue. Gorgeous art, uh, Frank Ray inking Jack Kirby, and I absolutely love Frank Ray, who is actually Frank Giacoya. I actually love Giacoya's inks on Kirby. I love even Brainwash Cap breaking Hitler's knuckles, and I love badass Bucky kicking a lot of ass, and I love the cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is a, uh, I, I can't argue with anything there. Uh, this is a good story. It's well worth, once again, well worth the 12 cents you paid, even if the uh, first half of the book was trash. Yeah. Um, and then it ends with uh, saying, 
How about that? Old Shellhead finally had a happy ending for once. I just read the ending of the Captain America story and it's like, oh, finally a happy ending for once. I'm like, what? That's a happy ending? Oh no, it says <laughs> Old Shellhead finally had a happy ending for once. As for Cap, he's only happy when he's in trouble. So he's probably laughing like mad right now. So there was one letter. This this one, we did have the letters page in uh, Marvel Unlimited. And uh, there's one letter that sort of jumped out at me uh, just because I feel it sort of reflects kind of what we're doing here. It's from a college student from Amherst College. It says, dear, dear Stan, Don, and Jack, you guys are artists. I believe in all your characters, especially Captain America. Who boy, he's just great. Oh, we, I wish he had a whole magazine to himself. The Mad Men on your staff have created a convention of artistic liberty, which makes use of many of the so-called, quote, discoveries of modern expressionism. You are not held to the narrow limits of the official art world. And as a consequence, you produce a consistent body of remarkable work that creates its own artistic and literary forms within the framework of a pure and living myth. And it embodies the most precise simulacrum of the spirit of American primitivism that can be found in any art today. Obviously, his supercilious, fancy college phrasing aside, I think that's really sort of kind of the argument that we've tried to make many times on here is that they are just able to have the freedom to do this crazy stuff and it ends up being fantastic stuff. That is a beautiful letter. I'm so glad you found that and read it. I had not read that letter. That's a beautifully written letter. It's saying a lot of the same stuff we're saying. And it's amazing he could see that at the time. And uh, so he says, Nelson B. Richardson, Amherst College, Amherst Mass. And they go, we're not sure we dig what you're saying, Nels. But if it's a compliment, we're much obliged. And if it isn't, we won't worry about it. Who'd ever know? So they're just making fun of him (laughs) for uh, using words like simulacrum. But this is a very well-written letter. Okay, I guess the next one is my turn. Giant Man and the Incredible Hulk, Tales to Astonish. And this is, once again, a monumentous issue because it is the end of the Giant Man and Wonderful Wasp feature, which has had its ups and downs, but uh, has recently been more down than up. So I am not. It's been so bad. Yeah, I'm not going to miss it. It's picking up from a cliffhanger. But I'm going to go through the uh, credits first. If you thought the first pitch of this story was a sizzler, wait until you catch this fastball from the bonus babies of the Marvel bullpen. Edited with perfect control by Stan Lee. Written with all bases covered by Al Hartley. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Drawn with the impact of a line drive by Bob Powell. Inked with the beauty of a three-bagger by John Junta, I guess. Junta and lettered with only a few errors by S. Rosen. So Al Hartley, we have seen him once before in the Marvel Superhero Universe. Do you remember? Yes, he penciled a terrible issue of Thor. Yes, very terrible issue of Thor. But he does much better work on uh, the girl books that they've got, Patsy and Millie. That's really what he's suited for, really can't do superhero stuff. But he is writing this particular issue. Now, well, I, I did some Googling on him just to find a little bit more background. Do you know who his dad was? No. The famous Senator Hartley. Ah, what? Yes. As in yes. Uh, as in the Taft-Hartley Act. Oh, <laughs> Hartley is the son of the, right. the Hartley of Taft-Hartley? Yes, he is. That's I'm, amazing. I'm, I'm sure that Senator Hartley must have been really proud. <laughs> <laughs> He was really ashamed of his son, Al, I'm sure. 
Um, anyway, yeah, no, I just found that absolutely stupefying. All right, to get right into it here, and let's try to take care of this pretty quickly. Giant Man is watching the wasp being taken off by the now flying human top. Of course, as you pointed out last issue, she uh, is probably going to get really, really motion sick doing this. Um, so uh, Giant Man is trying to follow them. Apparently, the woods are very close to wherever <laughs> they were in New York. He is uh, suddenly it looks like he's in the Jersey uh, wild woods or something like that. Is that a thing? I don't know. I just made that up. <laughs> what, yeah, I, the- were they supposed to be in Palisades where they sometimes live here? Yeah. How he ends up in the woods is very unclear no they were they were in they were in their downtown offices there right Uh, yeah anyway one way or the other it's it's ridiculous so the human top is uh trying to take off wasp's mask she won't let him and it becomes clear in this one if it hadn't before and it may have that he is really into her and wants her to join him in his life of crime she of course wants no part of it we then see his grand plan which is just utterly ridiculous he has gotten this plot of land he has steam shovels digging out a massive hole in which he's going to trap giant man he's going to build sort of a potemkin village on top of it which will be flimsy and then when he lures giant man to the spot he will fall down into the pit and will win (laughs) <laughs> and I'm just like, what? But then, then eventually we find out there is a giant refrigerator down in the pit, right. which isn't mentioned at first. No, it isn't. But and so, yeah, the whole time you're like, really? That's your plan? But here, those steam shovels aren't that deep yet when we see this right now. And yet by the time Giant Man falls in it, it's this deep pit with refrigeration coils all over it and stuff. I'm like, how long was the wasp imprisoned there? The wasp is able to use her cybernetic helmet with which she was able to communicate with wasps and also for some reason bees and sends a wasp to the distraught giant man who then figures out oh wait this wasp is probably trying to tell me something so then giant man needs to get where the wasp wants to take him so instead of shrinking down to the size where he could fit on the back of the wasp he instead increases the wasp size until the full size Hank Pym can ride on the wasp's back, which this just, is it, so insane. Yeah, like no, you have nuts. the whole idea of you of this strip, this this long interval strip that is finally dying with this issue, is that you can shrink. Like that was your original ability. If you need to ride a wasp, shrink down to the size of the wasp and ride the wasp. That is your original ability. Don't turn the wasp into a giant wasp that you can ride like a human riding a giant wasp. Like, that's so, like, uh, you've you truly you lost the plot. book that has lost the plot. <laughs> well, and, and also, he they make it clear that it's like, oh, this could be traumatizing for the wasp, so he might try to sting me. It's just like, yeah, so don't do that. We get a nice little humorous aside with the neighbors who are across from Hank Pym's lab seeing this giant wasp fly out with a giant man on it. The wasp takes giant man to the area where wasp is being held. The human top is able to push giant man into this model village and he falls down into the pit. There's then some kind of big metal sheet that then closes him in and you can see there's a whole track that it follows on and then you see the cooling coils along the walls and i'm like once again i will point out we just saw steam shovels in this hole a few panels ago so 
the wasp is somehow able to uh, escape the human top and make it into the trapped room with giant man. He's like, what are you doing? No. And she's like, if you're going to die, I'm, I'm going down with you. Let's, let's go ahead and face this together. So the refrigeration is super refrigeration and it's it, like flash freezes giant man. And so then the human top is like, I've won. Now I'm going to turn his, icy carcass into a statue uh, for some reason but then out jumps regular human-sized giant man and wasp it turns out that as soon as he started freezing he shrunk down within the icy shell and just waited to be able to break out which is kind of a cool visual the giant frozen shell with then the tiny people sort of you know we eventually he shows them like inside the finger of the giant shell and uh it's it's kind of a cool visual Yes. They're, they're not human size. They're insect sizes. Oh, are they? Okay, maybe so. And they're hiding in the finger of the uh, giant of the man size thing. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, they then are able to partially freeze the uh, human top. Then at the very end, giant man says, any man of courage is willing to fight for right and for the woman he loves. But no man has the right to live so dangerously that the woman at his side is constantly in peril. From this moment on, honey, I promise you things will be different. And the policeman or whatever who's walking beside them thinks to himself, sounds like Giant Man is getting ready to retire. And then they've just got a little caption on the bottom. Is this really Henry Pym's last adventure as Giant Man? Only Hank himself knows the meaning of his words. But we might just have a little surprise for you next-ish. Try and see. So uh, Giant Man is not no more, but he is. Uh, his feature is. And um, I think that it's not, not a bad thing. No. It's, uh, this is, I got off a book. It is wonderful that it is ending with this issue. Nobody comes off very well in this issue. Stanley just takes editing credit. Al Hartley's writing is not good. Bob Powell's penciling is not good. Whoever John Giunta or John Giunta is as the inker, that is not good. It is a terrible issue. I, I did think it was interesting at one point that the human top will eventually reboot himself as the whirlwind and become a much better villain. And one of the things that he only occasionally has that makes him a much more intimidating villain is whirling buzzsaws on his hands. Mm-hmm. And there's just one point in this issue where he has a whirling buzzsaw all of a sudden on uh, page nine, right. but it's like cut off in the art. It's like over the far left left-hand side of the panel and you can't really make out what he's doing with it. And then you see him whirling with it, but that's not exactly clear in the art either. And it's never mentioned in the writing and nowhere in the writing does it say like, Hey, giant man, eat buzzsaw or anything like that. <laughs> and it's just in these two panels and never seen again. It's quite strange. Yeah. It's interesting that human torch had no indication that it was the final issue, but here we get this, you know, just very briefly bit at the end going like, you know, sort of wrapping up the feature and sort of going like, okay, this is the end of it. It's interesting that they didn't try to do like backdoor pilots for Nick Fury and Namor. They didn't like have like, Hey, it's the final issue of human torch. And he meets Nick Fury and they call an adventure together. And, Maybe Nick Fury should take over this book. And, you know, here we don't have Giant Man hanging out with Namor and going like, hey, Namor, what are you doing next month? And as a matter of fact, they don't specifically (laughs) say they they never mention Nick Fury in that Strange Tales issue. They never mention Namor in this issue. We're later going to see in other books this month, they're going to be they're going to have house ads that say starting next month, Nick Fury and Namor but not in these two issues, which is very strange. So back into the epic of the Incredible Hulk and the leader. Let's see. Hulking story by Stan Lee. Hulksome art by Jack Kirby. Hulkish inking by Mickey DeMeo. 
hulkable lettering by Art Symac. All right. So when last we left this off, and we had this weird thing last month where uh, the Avengers issue was giving us some previews of this issue. One thing that I noticed about the timing that I was talking about that seemed weird to me is they had this panel of the Hulk being drawn through space that uh, I was like, wait, that did, that's not how that looked. Where is this? And then it turns out, no, that's here on page three of this issue. So whatever I was saying about the timing of when and where Rick Jones is, uh, it might be better or worse than I said, because <laughs> I had the timing wrong. So the leader has uh, subdued the Hulk, his, what are they called? Androids? Is that them? Humanoids. Humanoids, thank you. His humanoids are carrying uh, the Hulk out. The splash page is this great picture of the unconscious Hulk being carried out by the uh, humanoids. The humanoids are also carrying out the Absorbitron, which a leader has now been able to steal. And the army is just about to launch their nuke to test the Absorbitron when they see this swarming humanoid figures on the island. And so they're like, oh, wait, uh, okay, we aren't going to do that. So they then go onto the island to try and see what's going on, and they find the recently unconscious Glenn Talbot, who then, when he realizes the Absorbitron is gone, is once again thinks this is further proof that Bruce Banner is a traitor. Cut to the desert southwest, where the leader has set up a lair in... That looks like the same place that the Mad Thinker had set up for the uh, X-Men Fantastic Four fight. (laughs) Did he just... Did he just find the Mad Thinker's old <laughs> old uh, uh, hiding place there and just use that? I don't know. The leader has the Hulk anesthetized. Referring back to our last episode, we've got the third pair of awesome Kirby goggles this month where the leader uh, has yes. an awesome pair of goggles on the top of page five. This is indeed true. The leader goes off to get some other parts that he needs for some reason. Um, oh, that's right, because he can't get a hypodermic needle into the Hulk's skin. So he's trying to go get some more high, you know, high power stuff. And uh, but then meanwhile, while the leader is gone, the Hulk somehow turns into Bruce Banner. The sleeping gas that the uh, leader is using somehow uh, turns him back into Bruce Banner. So Bruce Banner is able to get out of the the constraints and he sends out a morse code signal uh from some of the tech stuff there so then we see general ross uh and major isn't it talbot talking about the whole situation general ross basically saying like shoot banner on site um but then we have this the panel number three glenn talbot is you know returning like banner won't escape you know he'll be shot on site and rick jones is like pressed up against the window the open window i might add (laughs) and he's saying the hulk needs me now more than ever before i'm like isn't glenn talbot supposed to be the security chief for this base yes and rick jones well-known juvenile delinquent and accomplice of bruce banners is able to not only get onto the base find the general's headquarters, get right outside, and listen in on this whole thing. I'm like, Glenn Talbot, you are terrible at this particular job. Like, yes, you, you may be good at other things, but not at being chief of security here. At this point, he would go, I'm not a bad man. I'm just a bad wizard. <laughs> That's right. So uh, Rick Jones gets in a convertible. It looks like a, a hot rod that he has somehow. Um, is that the same one that he uh, was in when he got blown up by the by the gamma ray? I don't know. Uh, By the gamma bomb. 
So Rick Jones makes it to Banner's uh, super secret Hulk imprisoning hideaway, and he is going to try and figure out what to do next. The leader comes back and finds that the Hulk has gotten out of his constraints, and so he sends in more sleeping gas. He's like, oh, I must have had the formula wrong. Because the plot demands it, the sleeping gas actually now turns him back into the Hulk rather than turning him from being in the Hulk. We then have, and I pointed this out online just yesterday, I think, page eight, the bottom of the page, the leader is shooting this science gun at him. He's saying, fool, you leave me no choice. Even your incalculable strength cannot survive a direct hit by the power of a trillion concentrated molecules. Now, Stan Lee usually does a really good job of over-exaggerating any, like, powers or amounts or anything like that, he really underhit the mark on this one. I was like, wait a minute, let me think. Avogadro's number, a mole, yada, yada, yada. I went and looked it up, and 18 grams of water is almost a trillion, trillion molecules. So if he had a trillion more than he's bragging about right now, he would be approaching a squirt gun. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know i know kids this isn't science i get it but i just you know i was just like oh wait a minute okay so um so the hulk at some you know they always have this thing about how much banner's brain is in the background you know uh guiding what he does and in this case banner's brain in the uh in his deep unconscious lets the hulk know that he must destroy the absorbitron rather than let it fall into the leader's hands so he does so the leader has a little rocket sled underground that he takes to get away. Uh, and then the soldiers are showing up in there and they see the Hulk and start shooting. Uh, we then see that uh, Rick Jones has somehow gotten in there as well. He's running away from the soldiers and he gets to Banner just in time to find out that he has been shot. And Glenn Talbot says, gentlemen, the traitor is dead. And Rick Jones looks shocked and horrified. Uh, and the blurb down at the bottom says, no, our series is not over. Don't miss the startling developments which await you next issue. And as you said, the whole thing about him seemingly being dead was spoiled in last month's issue of Avengers. Well, yeah, like, so this issue has a cover date a month after last issue's Avengers. But there are several whole panels in this issue that were swiped by that issue of Avengers. Yes. Or maybe this issue is imitating the Avengers issue. I don't know, but... Clearly, either these cover dates are wrong or there's a whole crazy thing going on here because this issue was entirely spoiled by last month's Avengers, which seemingly had several of the same panels. So I do not have the level of Marvel expertise needed to solve this conundrum. I can only sit here and gawk and say something strange is afoot and I don't know what it is. Yeah, You can tell that something is happening here and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? So... <laughs> This is a good issue. Mickey DeMeo, Mike Esposito doing a good job on Kirby Inks. I always love the leader. I love to see the leader having it out with the Hulk for really the first time where they're in the same location. You know, I do consider it funny in these things where it's like, we can't let the communists get hold of the Observatron that protects people from nuclear bombs. Like, we need to be raining death on the communists. We don't want them to be able to protect themselves. <laughs> like, I, for one, wish that the Soviets did have an Observatron and that the whole world was a little safer. But I guess at the time, the idea of the world being safer was horrific. 
Well, uh, you know, it, the whole thing is if one side had it and the other didn't, then the one who had it could then, uh, you know, rain down nuclear death on the other with the, with impunity. They're saying that if America had it stolen from them and then didn't have it anymore and Russia was able to make multiples of these and put them all over Russia, then that means they would no longer have the mutually assured, assured destruction constraint. So that's the way I read it. Yes, I understand that. But I still, I'm yeah. like, good, give everybody an Observatron and we can get past the whole nuclear era. But uh, yes. I guess at the time it was still considered to be a good thing. It's funny that they do have to tell us at the end that like, so Bruce Banner is dead. And they're like, wait, 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 unlike Human Torch and Giant Man, we don't mean it. <laughs> Human Torch right. and Giant Man aren't going to be back next month. But don't worry, guys. Uh, the Hulk, this is just a funny fake out cliffhanger. He'll be back next month. Don't worry. Okay, so why don't you tell me about the X-Men this month? We start off with some sad news, which then seems to be very happy news, and then turns out to actually be sad news, as we originally suspected. <laughs> There's one thing we love to do on this show. It's quote Old Simpsons episodes, and it's like, Kirby is gone. That's bad. Alex Toth has replaced him. That's good. Vince Coletta is inking Alex Toth. That's bad. And more importantly, Alex Toth just sucks. This is Alex Toth is one of the all-time great comic book Pencilers, although he penciled and inked very few comics, but his run on Zorro is legendary. Yes. His run on Torpedo is great. He has done several great comics over the years, but this ain't one of them. Somewhere squeezed between Kirby and Coletta, whatever contribution he might have made to this issue is completely lost. And it is a terrible looking issue. We have two of the girl time greats here, Kirby and Toth, but Coletta is defeating them both seemingly. And by the way, I don't know if this is uh, correct or not, but I have uh, been told that his name is pronounced Toth, but Toth. Um, uh, but I, I don't know. It's Hungarian, apparently. Okay. Toth. I will say Toth. But right away, this first page, like every figure looks weird and ugly. Like it's unclear exactly what they're doing. Like what is Cyclops doing on this first page? What is, is he? What are it? What are each of his hands in the middle of doing? We've got Professor X is Cerebro is really going off and freaking everybody the hell out. Cerebro has never been screaming at them like this before. And everybody is seemingly engaged in kabuki hand motions inspired by Cerebro going off. Professor X is like, the scariest mutant that's ever come to us is coming to us. Everybody go outside and put up a bunch of battlements around Savior Mansion. Professor X Mansion, X-Men Mansion, what's it called? Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. Yes. Go out and do it. They get super into their job and they have hollowed out logs with grenades in them. They're doing all kinds of stuff. And then they're like, all right, now that we've got all these battlements set up, let's go back inside and we can relax. And Professor X can tell us who is attacking it. And Professor X says, I'll tell you who's attacking. It's my brother. And they're like, your brother? You've never mentioned him. He's like, well, that was because I hate him and I never wanted to tell you about him, but now I have to. So then we get to this for the first time, we have Professor Xavier's origin. Again, as they hinted in the first issue, that his parents were involved in an atomic blast in Almogordo, New Mexico, when we now see Xavier at the time is like seemingly eight years old or so. Well, yeah, the first blast went off in Almogordo, New Mexico in 1945. This comic book is coming out in 1965. So if Xavier was eight at the time, he is now 28. And I guess, you know, bald people look old, yeah. yo younger than they are. So, but Xavier is never acts like a 28 year old in these comics. He never acts like a virile young man in these comics. He always seems like a wise older figure. You know, I mean, I guess 
compared to the X-Men themselves who were like, you know, 16, 17, that a 28 year old may seem, but I don't know when I was a kid, if I knew my teachers were in their twenties, when I was a kid, I should, I didn't show them a lot of respect. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I mean, clearly Professor X is 28 years old in this comic, as established in this comic, correct? I guess so. And that, that doesn't strike me as, I usually have thought, oh, well, yeah, he's just looks old because he has no hair. But, you know, I, I see your point as well. I will point out, as long as we're stopped for a moment, that on page four, panel five, I love that drawing of grieving and angry Charles Xavier at age eight, looking up at his uh, mom and soon-to-be stepdad. Yeah. <laughs> with the with the blonde curly hair as a matter of fact that's one of the few places i could really see what looks probably like toth influence on this that face maybe a little bit you know you just think it looks like a hanna-barbera cartoon character toth did a lot of the character design for the hanna-barbera cartoons and you know that the stepfather is going to be evil because he's got a beard yeah and uh he's sort of balding and he's got a mustache and goatee and yes he is clearly a bad guy so then we find out that Xavier's father has died in one of these nuclear blasts, which of course never actually happened. They never had anybody actually die in a blast. And then he suspects that his father's nuclear research partner set it up so that he would die and then wanted to swoop in and marry Xavier's mom. And that's exactly what happens. This guy takes over the house, quickly starts mistreating Xavier and his mom, and then things get even worse when the guy's other son shows up. The juggernaut is in no way a blood relation of Xavier's. He is not a half-brother. He is just a stepbrother with completely different parents and shows up instantly starts beating the crap out of Xavier. He's a terrible guy, big redheaded guy. So then suddenly Xavier stops telling the story long enough for the whole house starts shaking and whoever is coming starts breaking through their defenses. And they're like, uh, should we go attack him now? And Xavier's like, no, let me tell you some more of the story. He's like, no story time. (laughs) (laughs) I will finish my story. If we all Die in the rubble. <laughs> Story time. So we see Xavier's stepdad fighting with his stepbrother. There's a big explosion. The stepdad dies. Juggernaut is still coming. They're still worried about it, but he's still telling stories from the past. He apparently became a big football star in college because he could read other people's minds. I'm not sure how much reading other people's minds would necessarily help you become a football star if you're not like a big, strong guy, but. Anyway, it does. And then he also becomes a track star. Again, I'm not sure how much having mental powers would help you become a track star. But uh, he thinks this will be my last race. It's too easy for a mutant to defeat a normal man. Like, I, right. you've got this, mental powers, dude. <laughs> this is kind of like when the human top was first introduced. And it's like, so I became a speed skater because I can spin around so much. And it's like, <laughs> what? Yes, very strange how reading minds would help you become a sprinter. I have no idea. He has huge, huge trophy shelf. He's a very big deal. But then he gets in a big fist fight with his stepbrother, who is busting up his trophies. We then get a bizarre bit where he's telling a different flashback about a different time. You would think that fight would be like they showed things coming to blows between them. You would think that would be the moment when things came to blows. But no, we then get to another time, seemingly years later. When Marco is driving Xavier to college, they go careening off a cliff in their car and they're like, oh, is that when you lost the use of your legs, which has never been explained? He's like, no, don't you remember? I told you another issue that Lucifer did that and I never explained that. And I'm not going to explain it here and I'm not going to explain what happened when we went over the cliff. And I'm like, OK, why is that even in here then? Right. But then Juggernaut is continuing to approach. He is getting through more of their battlements. And yet he Xavier still insists on telling them more stories about the past. They are now both fighting in Korea together. I'm not sure that two 
stepbrothers who hate each other would have ended up fighting in Korea together, but they are. And then they, this is a similar story to this month's Thor, where they find a temple. And then we get this sort of bizarre crossover with Doctor Strange, where they find the sacred lost temple of Cytorak. And Doctor Strange frequently mentions the, the crimson bands of Cytorak or Kytorak or whatever it would be. And then they find the Rubio Cytorak here. Whoever touches this gem shall possess the power of the crimson bands of Cytorak. So it seems like they're setting up the Juggernaut to be a very Doctor Strange-themed villain, but he's not. He's basically just a big, strong guy, but he's got this sort of Doctor Strange crossover thing, and it would take many years before other writers would finally have the Juggernaut meet Doctor Strange and over their shared love of Cytorak. But uh, <laughs> uh, Actually, okay, with you bringing up the whole thing about how old Professor X is, let's go back and revisit that for a moment, because when was it you said that he would have been born? 38? 39? He seemed like he was eight in no, 1945 before, so he would have been born in 38 or so, yeah. Okay, so if he was born in 38, 48, he would have been 10. The Korean War was from 1950 through 1953. <laughs> um, what? <laughs> so that means he's somewhere between 12 and 15. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Has Lee just kind of forgotten when the Almogordo tests were? Oh, like, my God. Do you, do, you, do you remember the whole Fantastic Four backstory issue where they yes. just completely made no sense? I, I mean, you know, same thing. Yeah, it made no sense for the Fantastic Four to have all been involved with World War II in various ways. And it certainly makes no sense for this guy to have been a child during the Almogordo testing and and be old enough to fight in Korea. It makes no sense. Lee seems to think that there was secret nuclear testing going on in Almogordo as early as the 20s or something here. Well, God might have been. Thinking. Sure. Don't trust the government, kids. So then finally, Professor Saber is done with his story. He finally sends the X-Men out to fight the Juggernaut. Juggernaut makes quick work of everybody, beats the X-Men all out of the way, seeming unconscious, and we finally get to see him. And I gotta say, I never really, the look of the Juggernaut never really bothered me when I was a kid. I always thought he was kind of a badass-looking dude. But here, under the pen of, well, under the pencils of Kirby and Toth and the inks of Coletta, he looks really lame. This is just uh, when he finally shows up at the end of the issue. He's yeah. just a lame-looking dude, and it is a very anticlimactic ending of this issue. I mean, it's sort of a cool issue in terms of, like, just having an issue set up where, like, the biggest, baddest dude is coming, and we can't stop him, and we can't stop him, and we can't stop him, and now he's here. And that's sort of a nice, you know, way to to structure an issue but it all the execution is just really lame the it's good to get some history and there's interest there are good elements of this origin of professor x despite the ridiculous timeline but this is just an extremely awkward issue and ugly as sin it's for the most part a shame yes so i have some other notes to say about this well actually one thing that just jumps out at me is on page 20 the second to last panel take a look at Professor X's eyes. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty yeah. silly looking. Uh, yeah, his right eye is up above, touching the top rim of his eye like an eye normally would, but then it's hollow where you can see his iris, whereas his left eye is touching the bottom lid, leaving room on the top of the lid, and it's fully black. It just, <laughs> it's just like, dude, I mean, come on, try. All right, so there's one place on page six where a uh, chandelier is being knocked loose and is coming down a big chandelier with lots of crystal pieces and about to fall right onto Marvel Girl. And uh, Sykes says, Bobby, quick, 
form an ice shield over Gene. Move, X-Men. And Bobby says, I, I hear you talking, psych. Who just made it. And of course, she's got telekinetic powers. Right. Why she needs to be rescued. And she says, I didn't see that falling chandelier. I just rewatched a movie I had not seen since I was a kid, Akira. Ah, yes. And Katsuro Tomo first in the comics and then in the movie just proved that telekinetic powers can just be one of the most amazing visuals in all of the comics medium. And you never would have known it from reading these early X-Men comics that, no. uh, that, that you can make telekinetic powers look really cool. Like Katsuro Otomo were able to be able to make them look and uh, you would never guess it from reading these comics. Yes. Well, I mean, Katsuhiro Otomo is just like next level amazing, but at the same time, this is Kirby. So he could, uh, Kirby gone, is also an amazing dude. This is true. One thing that just became so tiresome for me in this issue is just the whole like, Oh, impending doom and then it's like okay well what do we do about it it's like you stay here and listen to me tell you about my brother and (laughs) it's like uh, uh, okay and then it's like oh my god he's gotten through the next thing shall we go get him it's like story time yeah (laughs) so a couple different things no there's still time time for me to tell you more about how it began and then a separate time now all we need is more time time for me to tell you the whole story (laughs) yeah oh yeah so uh on page 17 uh last panel on that page angel says careful you two i've just had my wings curried c-u-r-r-i-e-d as in you took some chicken wings and you may put them in curry sauce Uh, is that another definition for curry that i've never heard I have absolutely no idea what this means. <laughs> well, once again, I just whenever I see vocabulary uh, or or slang used in a way that I've never seen before in these things, I'm always a little fascinated by that. Okay, so um, yes, a really disappointing tease of an issue there. Unfortunately, Juggernaut uh, will go on to be a uh, long-standing and formidable villain, but um, yeah, not my not my cup of tea. I say at one point, it's like I said, this sort of brief interlude where where they get in a car wreck together, which has nothing to do with anything. And I'm like, I get the feeling that that was Kirby going like, oh, I'm telling the origin of Professor X. I have to explain how he lost the use of his legs. And then Lee in the dialogue had to go like, no, we've explained before that has to do with Lucifer and we haven't told that story yet. So, no, I was fine. That's exactly how I read it, except then going back through it again, I realized, but it was after that that he was in Korea. Yeah, you're right. It makes no sense. (laughs) None whatsoever. Oh, well. (laughs) Oh, well, indeed. Like I said, this whole issue is an oh, well. (laughs) You know, that could have been really nice. I remember earlier we were reading old Don Heck comics that were you know, some of his better comics. I'm like going, this is a nice looking down head comic. It looks like Alex Toth. We were talking about like, that's like a high compliment to pay it. And then here we right. get Alex Toth showing up in a normal comic and he is bringing seemingly zero value. So it is a, it's a shame. Yeah. It, uh, what it could have should have, you know, we have to think about what could have been if he had been able to bring his full value. Oh yeah. Okay. So let's move on and finish this month out with the Avengers number 18. We again, still have Cap's kooky quartet. And on the cover, it says, lo, a nation trembles when the commissar commands. Oh, turn around. Uh Oh, the commissar commands. Oh, (laughs) dynamic looking cover. Uh, The commissar is a giant, it seems. Although his swipe of his sword there, if you look at where uh, Captain America's uh, right leg is, 
Ed has clearly just been cut off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, l- l- let's move along. When the Commissar commands, we just have a uh, splash page that sort of presages the rest of the issue. Slyly written by Stan Lee, smoothly drawn by Don Heck, suavely inked by Dick Ayers, superbly lettered by Artie Simek, stoically read by you. If you'll ever turn the page. So, <laughs> anyway, we start out with Mopey Cap. Uh, and we'll have more of this for a while. They'll eventually sort of figure out how to modulate this right to really give a lot more depth to Captain America's character in the 60s. But they sort of overshoot the mark here at the beginning with him just being super mopey, hanging out in Avengers Mansion by himself. Looks like, I guess, Pietro and Wanda aren't staying in the mansion. They're staying somewhere else, I guess. I'm not quite sure. They have their own separate private apartments or something. Anyway, one way or the other, we find out that Quicksilver loves the circus and Scarlet Witch loves Shakespeare. And so they each want to take the other one to their thing, and then neither one wants to go to their other thing. So they just go to their own things. And uh, Pietro is a really simple guy. Uh, On page three, at one point, he's watching the circus and says, if only that could be me upon that trapeze. I'm like, dude, you're a superhero who can (laughs) run like as fast as sound or something like that. Why do you need a trapeze for excitement? <laughs> you know? I did um, find myself but, wondering, like, wait, if he had bought a ticket for himself and Wanda to go to the circus, and then Wanda said, "No, I'm not going to go because I'm going to go to the theater." Like, why doesn't Pietro have an empty seat next to him? But I guess he was a nice guy, and he just noticed people wandering around outside, going, "I need one ticket," and he was like, "I've got the ticket for you," and handed it to him. Uh, or, or it's just uh, I just assumed it was general seating. But (laughs) so uh, anyway, uh, there's a trapeze accident and one of the trapeze guys is about to fall to his death and Pietro zooms out really quick and saves him. But, you know, is so fast that nobody sees who it was. It's like, you know, so, oh, good. My secret identity is still good, even though I've got the exact same distinctive hair as Quicksilver and Quicksilver just showed up out of nowhere. So another thing that doesn't make much sense to me is we then see Clint Barton working on new high tech arrows. He apparently has been able to create an anti-grav arrow that sends a safe rocketing through the roof of this building, or it's either the roof or the wall, but heading upwards. And he's just looking out into the city like, all right, that's awesome. I was able to hurl that safe. And it's like, <laughs> so is this is this thing going to be anti-grav forever? Or is that coming down somewhere? (laughs) Because, uh, you know, it's coming down in a a Warner Brothers cartoon somewhere, I guess. But, you know, this would be uh, Tony Stark or Reed Richards level tech. I mean, we got that he's a tinkerer, right? But this is just too much for me. So anyway, it just really struck me as as incongruous. We then uh, see that there is a communist ruled puppet state called Sin Kong. Uh, So I don't know whether this is supposed to be an analog to any particular Asian country, but one way or the other. Well, it's strange because they've had a lot of stories recently set in Vietnam. And why is this just not Vietnam? I would think this would, because obviously Sin Kong is supposed to sound like Viet Cong. And, you know, obviously it's sort of like, again, there was this idea that we've talked about in previous episodes that, you know, there was this idea that like, oh, you know, the Viet Cong are just puppets of the Red Chinese, you know, and like the whole notion that the Red Chinese and the Viet Cong actually hated each other was something that America was just like, we refuse to hear that. La, 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 la. We're sticking our fingers in our ears because we are imagining that we are fighting a proxy battle against the Red 
Chinese uh, as we fight in Vietnam and are completely incapable of grasping that actually they hate each other and they're going to go to war as soon as we leave. So obviously Sin Kong, Sin as in Sino, Kong as in Viet Cong. I don't know why this whole issue isn't just set in Vietnam. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, and unfortunately, we're going to have some of the on the worse end of the spectrum that we've seen of Asian uh, caricatures in here. Yes, unfortunately. Uh, generally, they tend to handle Asian faces better than I think most comics of the time did. Uh, once again, saying this as a white American dude, but, you know, in my humble opinion. But yeah, here you've got like sort of the buck tooth looking thing on the top of page five the commissar's eyes are going to be all looking yeah uh so i'm just going to go ahead and say that throughout i'm not going to bring it up again but just remember that so we see the commissar who is essentially the warlord of this area of sin kong and he's like nine feet tall they don't really bring this up until later but you would think that people would be gathering that hey there's something weird about this guy that he's nine (laughs) feet tall and can uh hurl a boulder what looks like you know a hundred yards away and punch holes in rocks but they just basically are treating him like a god an angry vengeful god that they have to worship or else face his wrath so he wants to defeat the avengers so he sets a trap so uh he sends out a distress signal from the freedom-loving underground in Sin Kong, who is trying to uh, overthrow the evil communist rulers. And uh, it's funny, at one point here, Cap says, I thought Sin Kong was communist-controlled, but if an underground freedom movement exists... So I guess the thought here is that apparently in Sin Kong, we had no idea that there was any unrest from communist rule, that you know that they just had a, uh, a firm hand. So <laughs> Captain America is like, hey... If I do this, instead of, oh, I'm going to go and fight for freedom, he's like, ooh, if I do well here, then maybe maybe Nick Fury will like me. Really, guys? So, um, yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> Captain America hits the Avengers Assemble, like, emergency button. Pietro and Wanda both have to leave their performances, and uh, they all show up there, and he's like, oh yeah, um, I got a distress call from halfway around the world, so um, I don't know much else about that, but let's go. Like, dude, I left the circus for this. I, I I walked out on my Shakespeare for this. What are you talking about? Well, I thought it was funny. Also, when Wanda was at Shakespeare, like she's thinking, like, oh, I really wish I could become an actress. All my life, I've dreamed of being an yeah. actress. How I love the theater. Like, and this is also with Sue. Like, Sue has the sort of half-hearted desire to be an actress. I think Stanley just thinks that, oh, you know, all women secretly want to be actresses, so I'll give all my female characters that secret ambition. I'm I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure how much. Uh, Women wish they were actresses, but uh, that's in in Stanley's mind. That's a common thing. Yes. Uh, so the Avengers land, and they're like, "Wait, things seem weird here. It looks like the communist government was expecting us here. Something's fishy. Something's up. I don't know." But one thing I will point out is that Hawkeye says, "I don't like guns pointed at me, especially commie guns." I'm like, "You have turned traitor to the U.S. for commies at least twice now." Yeah. <laughs> And you're like, I mean, maybe, maybe he's just uh, uh, over, overacting it there. There's, of course, the whole thing about like such splendor in the midst of starving millions. It staggers the senses, which, of course, can be said about probably most civilizations throughout the entirety of human history. But so anyway, the Avengers end up getting trapped in some sort of room and they're fighting the 
Sin Kong soldiers who are after them. Quicksilver just running around punching everybody. Uh, then Scarlet Witch is separated from the rest of them by a trap door. So they go and find her, but they've uh, there's a you know grate between her and them. They're trying to get her out with some sort of high tech arrow. But then Sleeping Gas comes and knocks them all out. And when they come to, they're in a giant room with facing the commissar. They end up fighting him one by one, like uh, someone in a martial arts film here. And uh, the commissar is able to subdue Captain America and then Hawkeye and then Quicksilver. But then they're like, oh, yes, go ahead and let the uh, let the Scarlet Witch out and then let her fight you unless you're afraid to fight a woman. And so then she's able to use her hex powers to start destroying the place and then starts destroying the commissar, who it turns out is <gasps> a robot. Yeah. Well, so, he's 20 feet tall. So yes. given that that's not how tall people actually grow, it was, should have been pretty clear he was a robot right from yes. the beginning. Or an as alien, say, or a mutant, or something. Yes, yes, he's... Uh, as I say in my notes, big surprise. Yes, and uh, so then at the end, uh, he's talking to the uh, the locals, and he's like, by exposing their deception, we have caused them to lose face. It's like, yeah, thanks for uh, white-splaining what losing face is to the Asian people, you know, like, uh, but then at the end, we see that the uh, villagers are so grateful that they're carrying Scarlet Witch around on a litter. And uh, they have this whole thing about, I hope Wanda doesn't expect such service upon her return to America with us. How they're returning to America when the communist government had their plane and they've just done this. I'm not entirely sure. But um, yes, this is a weak note upon which to end this month, unfortunately. As you mentioned, uh, the uh, first the episode in which we covered the first half of these books was far superior to this one. Uh, this one sort of um, we had some we had some definite high points in this episode, but uh, not nearly as good a um, proportion of good material as we did in the previous one. Yeah, it's so you know we're going in alphabetical order on all books except for the Avengers, and we're doing the Avengers at the end because it always would come at the end of the month. But uh, we've sort of ended up we've ended up in a thing here where we often end up with poorer books in every other episode. This is, you know, the first four books this month were better than the last four books. Only the Captain America story was great. But uh, that's a shame. It's a shame. I think we get as much fun out of the good issues and the bad issues on this podcast. So I'm not really worried about creating, doing bad podcasting when we're talking about bad books. But I think it might be, hopefully it's just as entertaining for you at home to listen to this, whether we're talking about good books or bad books. But I think it might be a little more thrilling I know you listen to this podcast to be thrilled, and I think, you know, having a little more surprise as to where the good books are and where the bad books are might be something that we lose when we have four good books in one episode and four bad books in the next episode. Yeah, we could start randomizing but them. <laughs> we could start randomizing them, but of course, next week, everything's going to get checked up because we're going to bring in S.H.I.E.L.D. and Summer. Although, spoiler alert, the Summer book will always be very problematic. I yes. will, however, love the S.H.I.E.L.D. book. Oh, yeah. um, and by the way, I should point out in the S.H.I.E.L.D. house ad, uh, there's a little arrow pointing to Nick Fury, and it says, well, who do you think this is? Tuesday Weld? So <laughs> once again, once again, yes, another call out to Tuesday Weld. But we will find out all about that next month. So everybody, we've got two exciting new books starting next month. One of them, what we think, neither one of which we'll get to in our next episode because that's the Daredevil month. So two episodes from now, we will be introducing both Nick Fury 
and Namor, so that'll be exciting. Yes, absolutely. And Nick Fury will uh, definitely live up to the hype. And Namor, I've never really been a big fan of his solo stuff. But um, we will also get the introduction of the first penciler that you and I were ever exposed to in Marvel Comics, but under a pseudonym. But we will yes. we will see what that is uh, then. Okay, thank you very much, everybody. We always appreciate it. Uh, and thanks a lot. Stay safe out there. Yep. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.